J.T. Crowley is Talking Books. On this show, you'll hear from emerging talent and seasoned veterans from around the world. They'll give you their take on the writing process and how to create the secret sauce of page-turning deliciousness. Let's get into that magical mixture of the art and science of creativity. Here's J.T. Crowley, author of The Smart Kids and your podcast host. Hello, I'm J.T. Crowley, and today on my show, I have got uh, Dr. Kolb on to talk about his book, The Human Mind, A Psychological View of Theological Concepts. And when you look at his book, you'll see the author's name is Eric J. Kolb. Um, his, his doctorate is in philosophy, and but for the purpose of this podcast, he's quite happy for me to call him Eric. So that's what I'm going to do. Eric um, lives in Germany. Um, he comes from Oberkirchen uh, in Germany. And he wasn't always uh, in Germany. He's, he was actually born in Pittsburgh in the United States of America. And he moved to Germany. And I'll let him tell you why, if he wants to, everybody. But I'm just going to invite him onto the show. And I'm going to ask him to briefly um, let him tell us a little bit about himself. And then we're going to go into his books. So, Eric, come and join me on the show. Yes, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to have you on. And you know, the little chats that we've been having beforehand has just been wonderful. And I've learned so much about you. And when I've looked at your book, I'm thinking it's just absolutely amazing, everybody. The, the depth that Eric has gone into in these books is just absolutely stunning. But I, but I want uh, the listeners, the viewers to know just a little bit about yourself, Eric. So could you just tell us, you know, who you are? Who I am? Well, um, like you said, I'm a philosopher, but actually my PhD is in psychology, not philosophy. But yeah. that's why I didn't correct you, because I'm also a philosopher. Uh, I also, I, I'm a theologian. Uh, I'm a scientist. Uh, before that, I was an actor. I was a uh, circus performer, street performer. I'm a father, single father of uh, uh, three wonderful girls uh, who are just, you know, the, the pinnacle of all my achievements. So that's me. And I'm a chess player. Ah. But, so, you know, when I looked at the chats that we've had, and you have done a variety of things in your life. You certainly have. Um, and, and as your life progresses, I've found, you know, looking at your profiles and looking at your life, it's been, I found it truly awe-inspiring and very eye-opening. Thank you. You're very, very welcome. So anyway, let's let's get on to the book, shall we, Eric? So, so this book of yours, The Human Mind, a psychological view of theological concepts, is, I understand, Eric, to be the first of a series of four books, which you say in your introduction, you were compelled to write while you were still writing your first book, The Psychology of God. Now, we will briefly touch on that one, everybody, towards the end. There are nine chapters in this inspiring book of yours, and we will look at a couple of the chapters 
just to give, you know, you, the listeners, the viewers, a flavour of what this book is about, because that's the whole idea. It's not to give the book away. If you want to know what's in the book, go and buy it. Can't do a better marketing pitch than that, can I? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but before I open the book, I'm curious, I'm, I'm intrigued. You, you could say as to why, why have you written this book, basically? That's what I want to know. Why? Well, the simple answer to that, I just felt it is a, um, a calling of, of God to start writing. Um, also, I, you know, I, I can't do anything else. One thing I, when I was mentioning who I was, I didn't mention I'm also um, suffering from muscular dystrophy because that is, is that who I am or it's certainly a part of me, but not really who I am. But the simple fact of the matter is, the only thing that works on me um, very well is my mind and my fingers, you know, on this hand. <laughs> the, I, have to, I have to put the hand on the, on the computer and then I can type, you know, like that. And that's what I do. I, um, I love learning. I love researching. I'm, when I, when I, when someone suggests like a, a chapter of a book, I read the volume. You know, I, I, I like everything. I just dive in. I'm a little bit excessive that way. Um, and I just started collecting information. And I, I learned how to, you know, after I did my PhD, I realized, oh, researching is fun. Finding things out is fun. When I find a question, then I, I dig and dig and dig until, um, you know, I'm never satisfied with the amount of information, amount of knowledge I have about something. The more I learn about it, the more I learn more questions I have about it. And it becomes a little bit of Tsutsifusarbeit uh, is German. Uh, there's never ending. It keeps, keeps going and going. You know, I have a question, a research question, but that's the nature of science. They, they have, you develop a research question, um, then experiment to test that question. You may or may not answer that question, but in the process, a hundred other questions will come up. So if you are lucky enough to answer the one research question, you will probably also discover a hundred more questions that you need to follow up on. So that's what I do. I, I research, study, and follow and follow and follow. So is this book of yours, you know, The Human Mind, is this a, a collection of your research from both your scientific experience and your theological experience? Oh, it goes even back further to, to that, to my childhood, to my, to my life as a, uh, before I used to be an athlete. I used to run, wrestling was my main sport, but I used to have strength and endurance and it was during that time as an athlete that I learned to just work my butt off physically, train my body. And I applied the same kind of workout schedule to my mind and into my emotions as well. That we, uh, the, and I realized, you know, the human is made out of heart, body, mind, and soul. And that became, uh, the central theme of this, and that was a chapter in my 
first book, The Psychology of God, I realized one chapter of the heart, body, mind, and soul is not enough to do the topic justice. And so I decided to write a book on each of these because they're so, they're separate, but integrated to the point you have to um, look at it from each, from each side. For example, in my uh, book, The Human Mind, I have a uh, chapter on consciousness. In my book, The Human Soul, I also have a chapter on consciousness. And it's the same topic, but from two different directions. And there's hardly any overlap of the information. It's just the other side. Yeah, because they, um, behind you there, you know, the mind, the heart, the soul, the body, these are the core um the fundamental core issues around your books right each one and so the human mind is the mind one so let's let's open this chapter let's open this book shall we everybody we're on mind mind yeah um eric let's go to chapter one now as i said there are nine chapters here we're not going to do all nine chapters we're going to do chapters one four and eight everybody and if you like the sound of that, then, well, go and buy the book and see what all the other chapters are about. Eric, let's go to chapter one, belief, okay. the lens of reality. You start this chapter by saying everything we perceive, everything that enters our minds through our senses and everything we experience is first filtered through our belief system. Would you care to substantiate that? And where's your philosophical mind coming from here? Um, well, my area of, uh, when I was working as a psychologist, my main area was development, child development, how cognitive, emotion, of social emotion, of physical development. And when we think about the development of the mind, you know, what uh, from childhood to um, adulthood, you know, everything that goes in the mind comes in through our senses, and there it's processed. And the practically the bowl in which it's all mixed in is our belief system. If if I believe in God, then I see the world this way. If I don't believe in God and see, I see the world that way. If I believe in um whatever, it doesn't matter what, all the little things, um, not only the big question, God or no God, but whether um, driving with a seatbelt is, is necessary or not. You know, some even these little things, it, it, it directs our lives in different directions, uh, whether we believe, um, I don't know, uh, sugar is very, very bad, or uh, in moderation, okay. Um, if we believe Christmas trees are great or unimportant, that's going to be a little thing that throughout our life is going to give us a direction here or there, here or there. So all our belief system, all of our core beliefs is how we see reality. And then essentially there is really no knowledge. We can't really know anything. All we can do is believe something with a certain degree of certainty. You know, um, I believe the sun will come up tomorrow, but 
I don't know that. You know, uh, I believe that my name is Eric Kolb, but maybe I was switched. I, you know, most likely I look like my father. You know, I look like my other. I don't look so much like my other brother. So maybe not. You know, we can never really know anything. And what's interesting about that? Scientists come to the same conclusion. If you take a look at um, mathematics, Gödel's incompleteness theorem says just that. A statement can be true or false, but a true statement can be provable or improvable. It's still true. And that's proven in mathematics. And so is it also in, in our lives, we just start believing things and as we develop, that makes us who who we become. You know, still sticking on set chapter one, um, you break it up under various subheadings. Children's belief in God, created to believe, belief is a choice, uh, belief in God versus science. So that's interesting to me, that is. And you subdivide again to talk about anthropic cosmological principles. I mean, I'm created to know God, you know. And you even touch upon you know, a critical examination of Darwinian evolution. And for me, so in this opening chapter of yours, Eric, you've got some pretty powerful viewpoints here. Um, would you like to tell us why the deep philosophical subject matters here? And are they important to you? So much so you've written this book. Yeah, well, each of those I could, uh, you know... That chapter had, you know, each of those I can expand on a lot. Uh, so if I just go briefly over it, you know, um, the chapter, the section Child's Belief in, in God, I address that because um, a lot of people who do not believe in God will say, we only believe in God because we hear that as children and children are, they believe things easily. They believe in the tooth fairy, they believe in um, Santa Claus and and Anne. And then later they find out none of that's true. And a lot of people like to put God in there with it too. Um, but you can put everything in there actually. That's what it is. And there was an, uh, I, I, I um, mentioned a specific series of experiments. I can't remember the author of the, the who did these experiments, but uh, they found they, the conclusion was people who believe in God tend to be um, to rely more on intuitive forms of thinking, and uh, people who do not believe in God rely on rational thinking. And the, the authors wanted to more or less say if you believe in God, it's because you're not rational, you're not thinking rationally, you're thinking intuitively. And that's just not a fair assessment of the facts. Um, it is our intuitive thinking that makes humans so intelligent. If we only relied on irrational thinking, we would, we, we would not be where we are. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, if, if God created humans the way we are, we are so created that we first develop uh, an intuitive form of uh, belief system, intuitive thinking, which is why children believe so easily. And then later, a rational uh, belief system that begins to question 
our intuitive beliefs. And I don't, I mean, that's that's scientific facts studied, had no problem, but that's exactly also what the Bible says. When, when Jesus says, in order to get into heaven, you have to be like a child. I always would, you know, that's a, it's a, uh, people know that verse, but they don't really know what it means. It's not really too much discussed in sermons. Uh, it's often said, oh, because children are just so wonderful. Um, and they are, but at times, at times, at times, <laughs> it's down to it. You know, when I debate about the belief existence of God, it, you cannot know. He will not let himself know because then what's the point of faith? Where, what's the point of belief? There would be none if, you know, he was on Twitter. Uh, oh, he is actually. <laughs> the real, I mean, uh, but, you know, if God was like right there for everyone to see, we would we would not need to have faith, hope, or love. It, it, every everything would be irrelevant as life is now. That's going to come, but we have to get to that point as a society. So it's important that we understand we have this. We are created as humans to want to believe in something, in anything, and we hear the voice of God calling us this way. We hear the voice of money pulling us another way or sex, drugs, and rock and roll or whatever these days. You know, everything's pulling us in a different direction. The question is, what are you going to listen to? Where are you intuitively? Because then you can't rationalize. Who do I listen to? Uh, this person or this person or this person? You know, am I really going to research everything Person A says against person B. Well, you probably should, but no one does. They just, ah, they go this way, you know, or they go it's that way. It's a bit like, isn't it? You know, you're in a room and there's lots of doors to that room. Which door do I go through? Yeah. And so essentially belief is a choice. People yeah. choose to believe what they want to. And then they look for evidence to support that belief. And I do the same thing. Even as not, I pointed out in the book, I'm doing the same thing in that book, but at least I'm, I'm aware of it. And although faith has to be blind, it does not need to be ignorant. You know, that's why I've studied um, Darwinian evolution. I've read from Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Klaus Lawrence, three uh, world famous um, atheists. And I've learned more about God from them in the last uh, 10 years than I have in Sunday school, you know, hearing the same thing over and over there. You know, I don't just listen to what people say that agree with me because I'm not going to learn anything. They're saying the same things I already believe. I want to hear what the other people are thinking. You go and search things, in, search things out. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and so it's my faith. It's just as blind as anyone else who never opens up any book uh, mine's not as ignorant I understand science I understand how the theory of Darwinian evolution came about and the reason it came the, the question was the research question for Darwinian evolution was how could life have come to be if there were no creator 
So they take the fossils and say, well, we have all these fossils. If we put them in like a tree format so that one comes into the other, then, yeah, this is how it could have happened if there were no creator. But that's the, the, the premise, not the conclusion. You know, that's, where the, that's where they started, and then they began thinking. But if you take the fossils and put them back parallel, where I think they belong, then you see, okay, this is how it was. And it, it's just a better fit because we get more and more fossils. They keep having to change the tree. There's not so long ago, someone found uh, something that had so, uh, soft tissue in it. It's like, wait, that can't be because it has to be billions of years old. And this would mean it's only tens of thousands of years old and it doesn't fit in our tree. So uh, there must be a mistake. You know, the data that doesn't fit into the Darwinian evolution theory, there was a mistake or they test it again and again and again until they get the result they want. That's just, you know, this kind of scientific method would not be accepted in any other area of science. You know, if a medicine goes wrong in the test phase, they don't keep testing it and see, you know, well, maybe, maybe the medicine's okay and that person was sick anyway. No, they, they stop it. But, you know, people believe what they want to as sure. and look for evidence to fit that belief. And Sure. Let, let, Eric, let's go to chapter four here, uh, which you've headed up, theory of mind. Mm -hmm. Now, I found your theories thinking here – really engaging and probably bordering on compelling. So I wanted to pick your brains here. Okay. On earth, the thought process you adopted when you constructed this chapter, you start off by saying theory of mind, which you reference as TOM in brackets, is a confusing term because it is both a theory and, a, and an abstract construct. What are you saying to convey to the reader in this chapter? Why is this chapter here? Okay. Well, again, it's it's about um, development. Theory of mind is something that happens to each of our humans. Uh, it's a it's a theory in that we believe that's the point where our memories as adults kick in. So you can't remember. Uh, your the birth coming through the birth canal, your first birthday, second birth, somewhat. Our earliest memories go back to a certain point. And the idea is that point is when the theory of mind kicks in. And it really just kicks in. You know, there's different tests when they test a lot of different children from ages three to four on different theory of mind tests they find that all the children, the child either has a theory of mind, knows that, that meaning it knows it is a person, its mind is different from the mind of another child, or it doesn't. It fails all the tests or it passes all the tests. And that hardly ever happens in anything else. You get a bell curve with most things. But with theory of mind, you get two parallel um, groups, they either have it or they don't. 
And that's the moment where a child just realizes, oh, hey, I think this, but they okay. think that. That's... I'm, I'm also interested, let, you know, still on chapter f- uh, four here, Eric, you broaden your theories by touching on autistic spectrum disorder. You also cover off, you discuss, however you want to phrase it, proof factors involved in the theory of mind development, plus more theories. Um, Eric, can you know? Could you explain to the readers, you know, to determine the difference here, what you're getting at, you know, because this is a deep, complex chapter, isn't it? And especially when you've gone on to touching autistic spectrum disorders. Well, I addressed um, autism spectrum spectrum disorder um, because that that was the primary population that I worked with as a psychologist um, in child development. That's that's really um, what what I did mostly, and um, no one really knows what causes autism. We still it, it's a complete mystery. Um, uh, it's not vaccines. I'll go on the record and say it's not vaccines, and say that. But no, it's not. Uh, a lot of people think it is, or gluten, or whatever. Um, we don't know. The, the simple fact is, we don't know. It is linked some way, somehow, with theory of mind, that children with autism don't really understand that someone else has a different perspective. Uh, we notice in, in that, that's, so I, I addressed autism to actually describe theory of mind and the behavioral problems that arise. For instance, playing a simple board game, a child without theory of mind will get really upset when they lose a game because this child, the child wants to win the game and doesn't understand that everyone else wants to win the game. I want to win the game, so everyone else should want that I win the game. And if I don't win the game, something's gone terribly wrong. You guys didn't play right, because yeah. that's not the way it's good. You know, they don't understand. I, I write there another example of how to test uh, the theory of mind that's kind of fun um, that I, I do with a lot of children. And this works even if the child is nonverbal. We play with dolls. And I call Barbie and Lacey. I, I have, uh, I, I've only had raised girls, so I know Barbie like Everything about Barbie. So Barbie and Lacey, Lacey is Barbie's uh, uh, younger sister. <clears throat> Lacey says she has a little treasure, okay, and shows Barbie the treasure. We're playing dolls, and we're just playing dolls, and it's usually a marshmallow or something. And Lacey puts the, the marshmallow under the pillow, okay? And then they, I'm playing with a child, and the dolls do this, and the the um, then they go to soccer practice and the dolls are taken out of the story. And then I just briefly, I, I address the child now again, not as Barbie and Lacey, but as Dr. Cole and the child. And I say, hey, let's play a trick. Okay, look at this. I'm going to take the marshmallow out from the pillow and I'm going to hide it under the bed. 
okay? <laughs> and the child sees that and understands, the child knows, now the marshmallow is no longer under the pillow, it is under the bed. And then we go back to doll playing and we come back from soccer practice. And then if the child come back, comes back and, and says, it goes to, oh, where's my marshmallow? It's gone, it's no longer under the pillow. Then the child understands that although the child knows that the marshmallow is under the bed, the character she's playing, Barbie or Lacey, cannot know that. But if a child does not have a theory of mind, she'll come back and say, oh, my marshmallow, wonderful, I can eat that now. And goes right under the bed where she cannot, where the, the Barbie cannot know that it's under the bed. That's essentially what theory of mind means. To understand that my mind is completely subjective and no one knows what I know in my, what I'm thinking or feeling, and I cannot know what anyone else is thinking and feeling. It's like us too at the moment, you know, you don't know what I'm thinking. And how am I going to put the next question to you? I don't know how you're going to answer it. Exactly. Theory of mind. There you go, everyone. So let's let's move on to chapter eight, everybody, okay. and which is towards the end of the book. Development of mind and behavior. You start this chapter by taking a bit of a, a bit of a swipe, I think, at authors over what's evolution and what's development. Mm. You say development is the field of psychology that interests you the most, and that development in all fields of science has your attention. Hmm. Why the criticism of authors and what relevance does this chapter have in your book? Tell us. Well, in a lot of um, atheist scientists or um, I would say evangelical um, atheists, they like to throw around the word evolution and they describe processes and use the word evolution to describe it. And that's not what they're describing is not evolution, but development. Uh, for instance, a, a caterpillar does not evolve into a butterfly. It develops into a butterfly. If it would, if it would, if we did not know what a caterpillar, you know, there's a caterpillar that spins a cocoon, what's going to come out, we don't know, then, then we could talk about evolution if you want. But we know it's going to be a butterfly because it de develops into a butterfly. But So they, they try to, you know, get a point here and there, try to make, you know, sleight of hand and say, ah, see, there's evolution, there's evolution. I'm like, what? No, 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 you know. And I think it's a little bit unfair because they got to know. You know, I, I know that. Anyone who studies um, developmental process in psychology or, or biology knows the difference. But they try to make it sound like evolution when it's actually only development. That's an interesting viewpoint. I've never um, thought of it that way. And um, now I can, now you've mentioned that. You know, just purely by using that simple method of the, the caterpillar and the butterfly. I would have said, until you said, yeah, I would have said evolves into a butterfly. Now I'm starting to thinking, well, maybe it develops into a butterfly. 
So, Eric, you know, like all the chapters in your book, uh, you talk about certain issues under the main headings. Chapter eight, you head up development of mind and behavior, and you touch on areas like strength in weakness. Um, our actions are a result of our minds and, and our hearts. The minds uh, reboot switch, mind and behavior, intuitive belief in God, and scientific psychological studies on cognitive behavior. Um, you know, when I look at this chapter, you address some very significant areas that affect us all. And so I thought about this, thinking, is that, so he's talking about lots of issues here. So I'm going to ask you, is this chapter, again, an, an important chapter? And what you're saying here is so important to you that you need to get this message out. Uh, yes, definitely. This is, you know, this is where um, psychology diverges from a relationship with God. Psychology will tell you, hey, you can do it. The power is in you. You control your destiny. You can do it. You know, and we, the psychologist, you know, tries to inspire the person or find ways so that the person can see, can succeed on, you know, with their, you know, with their own heart, body, mind, and soul. But that's not at all what, what, you know, Jesus said. You know, when you go to the, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for those theirs are the, is the kingdom of God. What it means to be a Christian means to admit, damn it, I, I can't do it. Um, it's too hard. There's no way. There's life, life is deadly. It will kill you, literally. Life stress there's no way you're, you're just going to get hammered down, hammered down, hammered down. You do not have the strength. You're not going to make it in this world. But trust in God. Let him become your strength. And you become unstoppable. You know, And that's where, you know, strength and weakness. Um, yeah, I have muscular dystrophy. My body is... You know, look at this. Can't even, I can't stand the pee. I can't stand long enough to pee. But despite, not, no, not despite that, because of that, my, my mind has become so strong. My heart has become so strong. I've, I've become, nothing can, nothing can break me down. You know, not even illness, divorce difficulties, this, that. Look, what I live in the same world as everyone else. And I don't know. It's just it's like nothing can stop me. I, I just feel a power, you know, and it's not from me. That's the thing. It's not like, oh, you're just, you know, you, you're a hard worker. Yeah, but what is it that, you know, my motivation is not to uh, sell a lot of books. I've given away more than I've sold um, it, it, it's not to be it's simply God that's the only motivation to do what I've been created to do my purpose in life my meaning in life 
If you follow that, if you find out what your purpose in life is and follow that, then nothing else matters. Okay. You will be happy and successful all your life, regardless of what happens. Let's go to, um, you know, because you said in a right away start, yes, you wrote this book actually whilst you were doing the other book, you know. Um, Eric, I said at the short start of this podcast that this book of yours, The Human Mind, A Psychological View of the Theological Concept, is the first in the series of four. And of course, yes, you've got mind, heart, soul and body. They're the books behind there. And that you were compelled to write whilst you were still writing your first book, The Psychology of God. Um, So let's very briefly turn to this book. There are six chapters in it. Chapter one is the introduction. Chapter two, the four components, heart, body, mind, and soul. And here again, we've got heart, mind, soul, and body. Models of development, learning behaviors, faith, hope, and love, living and growing in the Holy Spirit. Why is this book so important to you? So much so it was your first feelings, your foray, your first rooting out into writing books. Um, I, I started that one. I, I didn't know who I was writing to. I didn't know what I was going to write about. Um, I just knew I was going to write. And the, the method I used to put that book together was I wrote a made, first I made a list of different concepts that one could a view from both a psychological and theological perspective, development, prayer, um, religion, belief, just a list of those. And then I wrote an essay a week for a year, a, um, a five-page essay. It had, I was very strict about that. That meant uh, the fifth page had to be started. And then after a year, I had 52 five-page essays that um, I shuffled together into what became the psychology of God. But in the process, I realized, okay, heart, body, mind, and soul, that, that's actually what I was supposed to do. So I shuffled that one together, you know, cleaned it up a little bit, put it in a book form, sent it off, it's done now. So that's kind of the introduction of book um, wide range. In that book, I also talk, talk a little bit about, about um, my life, my testimony, about having muscular dystrophy, about when I was first diagnosed with it, they said I had two years to live. You know, that was definitely, a, a, that was now 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. So uh, definitely a life impacting event on that because I just then decided, all right, I got two years to live. I'm going to just completely be obedient to the Holy Spirit um, these last two years because I only got two left. It's, you know, I accepted that. I accepted my physical death. And that's exactly what it also means to be a Christian, to, you know, if you, what the Bible says, if you save your life, you lose it. If you give up your life, that's how you save it. And that's what. I was essentially forced to do, to accept, okay, I'm going to die. I'm here in Europe. I'm having a good time. I'm a street performer. I'm talking a lot. I'm just going to keep doing this. I'm just going to keep doing it. And, okay, I'll just fall over at some point. 
And that'll be it. Okay. I was okay with that. And I just kept following the Holy Spirit and I didn't die. <laughs> I became a member of the first group of clowns that um, yeah. performed in hospitals and became uh, a clown doctor. Uh, where as uh, a clown doctor, I'm helping children with humor cope with um, cancer, leukemia, AIDS, and these children are dying, and I am too. Well, so I thought, or so I was, so we all are actually, all the time. And using humor to um, get through that. And that's where, you know, that was around the, the time the Patch Adams movie came up so clowns and in hospitals has just exploded and at the same time I'm losing the ability to walk I can't stand on stage and I know my career as an actor and performer is over my juggling career was already gone as a circus performer because I only had one arm then the other arm stopped working um, so I said all right if humor is the best medicine then I'm going to study it as medicine. I want to know um, how to prescribe it. I want to know the right doses. I want to know uh, for what it's good, where to use it. And so I started um, studying psychology, and humor was actually my, my topic of interest during my master's, my undergraduate work. As I was working as a clown therapist, um, then I graduated and I became... A, a mental health practitioner here in Germany and humor and my clown skills were really um, so so helpful in my work with children with autism um, because they can't a lot of them can't talk and so I we did everything nonverbal a lot of nonverbal and I could do that they're not interested in people but they're interested in objects so I can do a sleight of hand magic and make them interested in something hmm. and then get their interest and use my clown skills to form relation, working relationships that I can put into a therapy. But eventually I didn't have the strength to do that anymore. Um, so I said, okay, I can't be that. And then I went back to school, got my PhD and said, all right, then I'll write books and teach other people how to do that. And that's what I'm doing today. And the books are fascinating, everybody. They really are. Really, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, what's next for you? Uh, I actually, uh, my next book, uh, The Human Soul, is at the publishers as we speak. So maybe shortly after all this comes out, uh, you can Google Eric Kolb, The Human Mind, The Human Soul, and I've already started on The Human Heart. And after that will be the human body. My goal is to write five books in five years. And I'm on track with that. Got three three books down in three years, two more to go. The human heart and the human body, I save those to last because they're going to be easier. Uh, my, my dissertation was on emotional processing. So I uh, got all the, all the um, research done with that. And by the way, all, all of my work is written uh, scientific-based. All the um, I use peer-reviewed peer uh, articles only and all these books, except for the, the human body. I'm going to step away from that, and I'm going to talk more about you. this. 
Yeah, Why this, not? This thing here. Because um, there's there, there's no, you know, um, that's what I, I know yeah. about the body. Talk from the personal experience. Um, who do you see as your market for your book? And more importantly, who do you want to read your book? <sighs> My market is prideful human knowledge. People who, you know, like I said, you know, belief is a choice. They, you, you believe something, you, you think you know it, you know, and, and then you stop there. You know, how often, you know, every adult knows uh, who has a teenager, knows you think you know everything at some point, and then you realize you don't. You don't. <laughs> You're an adult, because then you know everything. But go a step further, you know. Faith is blind, but it doesn't have to be ignorant. Um so think critically about everything. Um, whether you believe in God or don't believe in God, think critically, question. You know, people like to say, you know, Doubting Thomas uh, is sometimes gets a bad rap. You know, don't be a Doubting Thomas. Why not? Jesus wasn't upset when, when, when Thomas said, no, I'm not going to believe until I see the scars in his hands and, and the wound in the side. When Jesus then appeared, he didn't go, oh, gosh, Thomas, Thomas. He wasn't upset. He said, look, here. You can see. See him? Now believe. And he also went on to say, I believe. That's it. Yeah, you're fortunate enough to be able to physically see me, yes, and believe. But those that are coming in the future won't be able to see the physical side of me. And so it's up to them to believe. Isn't right. it? Right. But we can still, we can, you know, oh, yeah. science, science studies God's creation. Theology studies God. And either way, you can find God through science or you can find him through the Bible or you can find him through nature or family or whatever, because or through life, through life. Dr. Cole, thank you so much for this fascinating interview i thoroughly enjoyed reading your book it certainly opened up my mind and everybody if you want to um you know go and search him go and have a look go and look at his books and um, bookstores amazon wherever you want to go and find it go and have a look and so as i end the podcast everybody as i normally do each time i'm jt crowley thanks for listening watching wherever you're in the world so until next time stay safe Thank you.